Welcome back to Zevo Talks. My name is Davina Ramkasoon. I am the Health and Wellbeing Director here at Zevo Health, and today I'll be your host. I'm joined by John Lonergan. John is an author, public speaker, and has worked in the Irish prison service for over 42 years, including being the governor of Mountjoy in Dublin City. John is a huge believer in social reform and mental health. You can see a huge link between prisons and the workplace and how both environments can be improved to maximise the positive mental effect and thriving on the individual. So thank you for joining us today, John. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, yeah. Thanks. So John, you know, we've had some great chats in the past and I've been so fascinated by your career history. Um, but I'd love for you to maybe just give our listeners a little overview about your career and maybe just briefly telling us what attracted you to work in the prison service to begin with. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I'm a native of Tipperary. Um, so I grew up in, in, in the countryside in a little place called Banshee West Tipperary. Knew nothing in the world about prisons, didn't even hear of them, um, except occasionally they might make the news when there was an escape or something. Uh, but other than that, I knew nothing about prisons and I had no ambition in the world, obviously, to join the prison service. Uh, but I did so by more by accident than design in 1968. That's 53 years ago gone since the last days of March just gone, which is a long time ago. A different world and a different Ireland uh, in 1968. Um, and I went into work in the prison system on the basis of the, just that I, I noticed or became aware of um, public notification by the then Civil Service Commission, which is not any longer there either. And I applied and was interviewed and did an exam and eventually was assigned to Limerick Prison on the 8th of March, 1968. And I, so I entered uh, the job on the basis with the belief, naive uh, belief that I had at that stage. I was just 20, so I hadn't much life experience. And I entered the prison service, I, I suppose, on the belief that all the bad people would, would be in prison and all the good people would be outside. And honestly, I wasn't there a week when I realized, well, that perception and belief is certainly not true. Uh, because what I found there at that stage uh, were mostly men, um, uh, many of them with learning difficulties, psychiatric difficulties, physical difficulties, uh, all types of difficulties, and uh, maybe one or two serious criminals mixed amongst, amongst them. So I realized almost instantly that prisons were being used very much as dumping grounds and dumping institutions for misfits and social rejects in society rather than bad, dangerous people. And uh, so I started, I suppose, to learn almost from that day onwards that life wasn't as black and white as you think it is. And being judgmental was definitely a dangerous thing to do. And I, I did try to practice that for the rest of the 42 years I, I spent in prison because I learned that very early on that being judgmental was definitely not something you could um, do uh, and, and participate in and still do your job because, because of, of all the things you don't know about people. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so then after that, I spent quite a number of years uh, early on, uh, three years in Limerick. Then I went to an open centre in Shangana Castle. It's gone now as well. Uh, but it was an open centre which completely changed the dynamic of a prison. Closed prisons are, are operate on the dynamic of mistrust, 
We'll talk about mistrust later on because that's a big issue in relation mm-hmm. to the well-being and uh, how people feel and all that sort of thing. And if you're, you know, not aware you are in the workplace or at home, if there's a huge element of mistrust, well, that is damaging to your well-being in every aspect, but certainly your mental well-being. So the open centre concept is the complete opposite of that because uh, there were no boundary fences, no walls, no barriers, physical barriers. So the person was young people, they were for 16 to 21 year olds, they were transferred there on the basis of trust. So they stayed there because they, they agreed to stay there rather than they were made or physically contained there. And I learned a lot as well about young men from that experience. And then, uh, and I suppose the other uh, experience that I, I'd have to mention is uh, I was subsequently promoted to different grades. And uh, I suppose the next major experience I had was I, I had uh, a, a job as an assistant director of Lachan House, which was an, uh, an industrial school at that time in the late 1970s for children uh, between the ages of 12 and 16. Um, the Department of, jo- of Education failed in its job to look after children that were in need of some type of secure detention. And uh, they were handed over uh, to, the, for the, to the responsibility around the, the responsibility of the Minister for Justice. And I was sent up to Lawn House in Black Lion to look after them. And that was an amazing experience of, of what um, I suppose working with children mm-hmm. uh, that had been deprived of everything almost in life. And they weren't bad people at all or bad young people. They were simply just wild and had no structures and no boundaries. And that's where I became very aware of the importance of boundaries, but mainly boundaries by agreement rather than boundaries by imposition. And there's a huge difference. An Irish society would have been built on and developed over many decades on the basis of imposing uh, uh, boundaries on people rather than getting their, their agreement and involvement in it. Uh, and that was an amazing experience. And then in 19... Um, 84, I was appointed governor of Mount Joy. I spent four years as governor of Mount Joy. Then I, they uh, asked me to go to the Department of Justice, asked me to go to Port Leash to um, be governor of the top security prison, which I did uh, for, for uh, I was asked to go for two years, but I actually stayed for four years. And then I went back to Mount Joy and spent another 18 years in Mount Joy. So I spent 27 years in total as a governor, 24 in, in or 23 in Mount Joy and four in Port Leash. And I retired then uh, in 2010. So I suppose to summarize then, um, I learned almost everything I know uh, from that experience of working in prison. Very unique experience, uh, but a very valuable experience that most people don't have. Um, because of the dynamics, as I said, of prison, uh, where people are confined against their will rather than. And so the whole dynamic all the time of the challenge was to try to get some growth and development into, you know, to help people grow and develop in that environment of, of mistrust and negativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a challenge, but you'd, uh, it's amazing some of the things that worked very well. And we can talk about some of those later on, if you wish. Yeah, that would be great because I'm just thinking like you have so much experience, um, you know, viewing the full spectrum of life. You've seen, you know, how when things go well, how 
you know, your prisoners can be reformed, how they might just need some of those boundaries put in place, the respect, the care. Um, and also the other side of, you know, children being brought up in poverty, you know, mental health um, illness, um, maybe par parents have had mental health illness, psychiatric illness themselves and seeing them come through the, the prison service, as you mentioned. Um, and I was just going to say, when you were touching on about, um, you know, how you reform prisoners or, you know, give them that care, to, to make them think a bit bigger beyond the walls of which are imposed around them. How, how was it, you know, when you saw prisoners come in um, and that contrast between the prisoners who maybe got on with the, with the kind of adopted the mindset of being institutionalised um, versus the prisoners who, who had that, that eye-opening to say, maybe I don't want my life to be this way, maybe there's another option. Um, I'm just interested to hear about that perspective on the institutionalization and maybe if there are any parallels that you've seen in general life and in, in workplace in general. Yeah, like, first of all, uh, there is a huge uh, connection between what happens in normal life and what happens in prison. And when I, ever, when I used to say this when I was working, a lot of people found it sort of strange or, or funny uh, or what mad um, because they didn't. But, but I mean, I suppose one of the things I used to always say uh, and realise from an early stage is prisons are all about people. They're not about institutions. Mm -hmm. They're not about, uh, you know, security. They're actually about people people who work there and the people who are confined there. Um, and that was a big, uh, a fundamental uh, basis of, of my work and philosophy uh, was that we're talking about people now. And I also said, um, uh, you know, way back, I, you know, publicly uh, I used to make a lot of talk publicly a lot of the time, mainly to try to convey the picture, uh, a picture and a message out to the general public. I said very early on in my career, uh, you know, because prisoners are often referred to as them. By, by mainstream society, mm -hmm. them. Well, they're not them at all. They're us. They're very much us. They're, you know, they grew up in our houses and our streets. They were educated or not in our schools. And, and, and so they're all, all part of us. And that was the first thing that I thought was, you know, it is very easy to say them, but, and that just exonerates us from any responsibility. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not our fault. Well, it is actually. We all have a responsibility to how, why people end up in prison and why people are disconnected and alienated. Um, so that was very much, uh, you know, to, to understand that as, as well about people. I, I suppose the other thing that there's a huge connection, in my view, with any management or any workplace or anybody that's, that's working with other people, and that is to have as your fundamental principle, um, you know, and work off the principle of always showing respect. And that is very challenging in prison because I mentioned earlier on about the dangers of being judgmental. And I had a real battle with staff and with lots of people, mainly with staff, about mm -hmm. that, to try to encourage them not to be judgmental. Like, oh, he's a rapist, so we want nothing to do with him. Uh, but mm -hmm. he's okay because he's, he's only in for embezzlement. Sure, he, he's... Now he could, you know, once you go down that road of, well, well, he's one and he's somehow, she's this and she's that. She's a child neglector. Oh, my God. Um, but she's only a misfortune. And once you go that road, then you're absolutely disaster. And that applies in the workplace as well. Uh, being judgmental and, and not showing respect. Mm -hmm. And uh, so my, the fundamental re uh, philosophy was about showing respect. 
Um, and, and I used to try to do that in every, in, indeed, I, I used to discriminate in a way in favour of those in prison because my philosophy was for staff and for everybody else, we all had options. The option of leaving, yeah. gone. But prisoners had no options. They were confined and therefore they had no uh, way of being relieved of this. And the other thing I suppose about it was that I found it to work absolutely 100%. To the extent that I can say now, 10 years after retiring, that I have so far never met an ex-prisoner that has been abusive or disrespectful or actually the opposite, the very, very opposite. Uh, in there are hundreds I meet them on the streets of, of Dublin and Cork and Limerick in particular, the bigger cities and towns when I go out or when I'm going socialize anywhere. Um, I meet them in there hundreds. And as I said to a man and a woman, and that is based on that very fundamental thing. And that's the start of it. Then the, the next point I'd make is, um, you know, I, I learned as well, you, I, can, you cannot reform anybody else. So mm-hmm. give don't even think about it. Yeah. Uh, what you have to do is, I, I learned, I shared this little bit of philosophy with you because um, it's not mine. It was written, they claim it was written 600 years before Christ. Now, whether it was or it wasn't, doesn't matter. But it was written by a Chinese and it, is, it was fantastic philosophy. And it was about that, about working with people and kind of get the best out of them. And it goes something like this, uh, go to the people, live with them, uh, love them. Now, that's very important. And it's not, as you know, a romantic love. It's because what's in love, it's about respect. It's about acceptance. It's about taking in an interest in, being supportive of, being caring of. So all the principles are that. So go to the people, live with them, love them. Start with what they have. Build with what they know. But when the work is done, the task accomplished, the people will say, we've done this ourselves. I think that's fantastic. So it's about working with them, encouraging them, helping them, but also accepting them where they're at and not trying to impose anything with them. So to the, and for, for the, to do that, then you have to have great patience. You must have great belief. And for, I suppose for me, one of the things that I noticed, and this would be very connected with the workspace as well, a lot of uh, people had huge personal ability, but they were unaware of it. And secondly, they, they had no confidence. And you, I, I was, you know, towards the end of my time in prison, I was saying the greatest single gift and help you can give any other human being is to build their confidence if, if it happens to be low and their self-esteem because confidence opens so many doors and, and it gives you that ability to put yourself forward. So, and, and self-confidence I found was almost non-existent in prison, would you believe? Almost mm-hmm. non-existent. Some of the most talented people um, had no self-belief at all and they felt they were useless and worthless because they were indoctrinated with that message from childhood and because us as a society made sure that they were alienated in communities where they had no connection with mainstream, they were poorly educated, they were cut off from the mainstream. And, uh, and then so, and I asked that question because when I looked at the prison population, which I did in 1985 after being appointed Mount Joy, I discovered that 97% of the people came from the two lowest socioeconomic groups. And I discovered when research with the late Dr. Paula Mahoney that six tiny little areas in Dublin City, for instance, supplied 75% of all Dublin-born prisoners. Wow. They were the most poverty-stricken areas. So there was a direct connection between social alienation and poverty and imprisonment. Mm-hmm. And 
And I suppose it was that then. And so the, the, the biggest single thing I would say, if you said to me, what's the biggest single thing you can do to help people to reform or to, to, to rehabilitate themselves? Or something, I would say in respect, first of all, show them respect and encouragement. It's, it's really all about encouragement, that consistent uh, message. Uh, you know, I know, I believe in you. I know you can do it. Give it a go. Keep trying. Come back again. That is a message I would be saying is very much true in the workplace as well, that we sometimes we dismiss people, uh, we, we uh, ignore them or we criticize them. And, and that was the final thing I'd say on that count. The one thing I realized that doesn't help any human being, and it certainly didn't help any prisoner, and that was criticism. Mm-hmm. There's no be quiet because they were used to criticism. Punishment and criticism was the, was the stuff they were lived on. That was their oxygen almost. And so, and I discovered very, they just didn't take any notice of it. They expected to be criticized. And if you expect to be criticized, and when you're criticized, then it, it certainly doesn't leave any mark on you, except to confirm your negative self-thoughts in the first place. So, so it's so important to have that, to, 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 you know, to have that message constantly going out and repeating it and putting it into practice. Though. It's no use talking about it. You have to live it as well. And that means that you recognize uh, when people make an effort and you reward them in whatever way. And the best reward of all, uh, most times, is giving praise and giving credit. 100%. That would be my, my message to employers as well. Because lots of, uh, you know, in lots, of, lots of people that are high powered, they take credit, but they're not very good at giving credit. And I would say praise and giving credit to people is one of the greatest motivators. And it does make a huge uh, difference to their well-being as well. Because people who feel well about themselves, should they're going to be 20 times better employees than the person who feels very bad about himself. 100%. You've, you've touched on so many interesting points there. And um, the point around, you know, self-confidence and self-belief and you know, linking that to recognition and praise in the workplace and, and the wider societal and community factors, you know, I think we're all primed for negativity and we're all ready to kind of say, oh, yeah, what's another thing I might not have done so well this time? Um, and you can see it in an individual when you give praise, how their face, their body language, everything changes. Um, and what I'm thinking of is is in your book, The Governor, you speak, I think it is in the open prisons, you had the the garden um, where where you had the prisoners, you know, take ownership and create that lovely um, little garden patch. And even the kind of forward thinking ideas that you had at the time with the drama um, school and how that helped to build confidence and, and self-belief to say, oh, maybe I do have a talent, maybe I do have a skill, maybe I do have another way of expressing myself rather than the old behaviours which I've learned. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, seeing um, the, the prisoners, you know, go through that process? And I know the, the drama schools, um, the drama um, yearly event was very successful um, yeah. from, from the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I suppose one of the things I'd say, because this is very much also going to be try to link it in with outside employers and people who would be involved in other things. I would say that that in terms of one of the things that and the, the drama was indirectly connected to this because we brought in the public. We invited in the public on that principle that I said earlier on. They're your prisoners. They're your prisons. Let's come in and see them in a positive way. And that was a lot of the thinking behind the drama. These were all people that were constantly criticized and ostracized and condemned. 
And now I was trying to show them in a positive way. I also wanted to show their families, to let their families see them in a positive way. So that's when they were acting up on the stage and when they were absolutely, you know, uh, broad, uh, you know Broadway levels of talent on that stage, or, or in Irish terms, the Abbey sta standards of, uh, the Abbey theatre standards of acting, that a family would come in, a mother and a father or a, or a partner or a child, and see that person who was condemned last year on the newspapers and the television and here he is now he or she in a very positive thing and, and the link i was making was that employers anything you could employers can do to link with local communities and to do some work in local communities to send out the message that we're bigger than just production or we're bigger than just ourselves mm -hmm. that we have a, an interest in the local community that gives people uh, workers and, and people a huge lift because they see themselves as contributing to something else. And that was part and parcel of the, uh, the, the drama project. I would so strongly recommend drama. I mean, I'm always saying it in social disadvantaged areas, when you look at these facilities and amenities, they usually have none, which is, a, you know, in some ways it's, it's funny. Funny to think that we think as a society, and this is where I said us, that we think that it's okay to have children born into those areas. And, and then we expect them when they're 18 or 19 or 20, when they're adults, why, why are you behaving like that? We never ask ourselves, did we actually contribute by not providing them with the opportunities to grow to their potential? Mm -hmm. What I said in, uh, and I, what I found in prison were quite a significant number of very, very intelligent, uh, uniquely talented people. The sadness was they never even recognized that talent. Not alone did they not recognize it, but nobody else did either. So because we all depend on other people as well to recognize talent. And I'd be saying this regularly to, to employers, all the time be looking out for that hidden talent that's within people. Because lots of people go through life and their talent is never recognized. They're real talent. And it's a very much... A part of that and that's what the drama was about doing it was also introducing teamwork because the one thing you learn on the stage is you depend on everybody else and if, if you're not you know the first next person hasn't his lines or her lines ready and isn't ready to do it or if the whatever it is uh, doesn't happen and um, the proper lighting or the the props or whatever you will absolutely collapse so they learn teamwork which is something by the way that they had no concept of they had no concept and um, and so, and, uh, and and supporting one another, and all that, all the dynamics that go into that, um, was was fascinating. It was just, and the reward, and and you know, it's easy to say this, uh, you know, for somebody to say this, but I'm absolutely, I know this is true. It was life changing for many prisoners, and so a lot of life changing things um, happen not by design, more by act in the sense that it's like the you know rising tides lift all boats like if you're involved in something like that you you you're not directly doing it to you know to change a life but because of it people's lives change and i knew several people who never look back ever uh, for the rest of their lives as a res direct result of the drama so the drama was and one other thing which was i have to mention as well about the well-being of people and um, especially with 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 um, with the producers with, uh, the people who came in to produce they were all outsiders and uh, we had we had uh, you know three main producers that came in uh, over the years to, to produce um, they they all had a philosophy that you know when people were were asked to 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 put their names forward for casting and for 
for you know roles in the play that they they all had 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 this belief or this philosophy that they try and not reject anybody because prisoners were so used to be rejected and again back to employers and back to to life there's nothing more hurtful for another human being than rejection there is no question about that in my view to mm-hmm. be rejected um, and we and we often do that unconsciously even reject people and that creates a lot of in in employment and in you know in in industry and in different ways people are often rejected and the philosophy of not rejecting. So if a person didn't make, you know, I get make get a cast for a role, maybe they, they got some little job backstage or maybe even what I remember one case, which was amazing altogether. The, the woman concerned um, had, you know, was a very short term person and she she didn't get any part of that. But they put her she put her just making the tea for the cast and sweeping, the, cleaning the floor, that little things like that eventually because one of the main characters withdrew from the play at a short notice and um, she was asked to go on and she brought the house down she was amazing wow. such an extent maggie was her name and maggie was so good that when she was in the play wasn't she due for release on the saturday and the play was going on to the following tuesday she volunteered to stay which she did in prison in the docker center in mount joy for the three extra days to finish her time on the stage um, and one of the staff said to me on the, on the Wednesday morning when she was released in uh, three days late, uh, she said, you should see her leaving this morning. She danced out the gate. Um, now, how can you measure the value of that to Maggie? Mm-hmm. Uh, simple drama in a prison of all places. And uh, so, so I, I suppose I'd be just saying that, uh, you know, providing the vehicle, sometimes the, the facilities, the, the environment for people and human beings many of them will grow in that environment. And then it has, rather than setting out that I'm going to reform you, um, by putting in place facilities and and being thinking about the sort of things that will help people to grow. Uh, the same with our work parties. They were exactly the same, uh, going out to do the gardens for the elderly in the nursing homes or building community centres, which we had a, a work party doing. Uh, they built about 27 community centres all around Dublin in the poorer areas. The satisfaction of doing that, going out every day, working in the community. I remember we had a work party up in Blanchestown and in one of the units there where the older people were resident. Not alone did they, they do an amazing garden there, but their friendship and their relationship with the, with the, with the older people that were in the, uh, as residents there, that was amazing to such an extent that the, the residents used to look forward to the van arriving every morning and the guys going in and chatting first and then going out and doing the garden or pushing somebody around in a wheelchair for a half an hour. That sort of, listen, you couldn't measure the value of that. And that's the sort of stuff um, uh, tailored to suit any uh, any workplace. They're the sort of little things that can change lives and make people. And of course, the happier you have people, the better, you know, the, the, obviously, the happier they are, the better the production, the better the environment and, 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 and the, the well-being feelings of everyone else as well. So there's tremendous uh, potential in, uh, in any, on, on all those sorts of things. And, and I suppose taking risks as well, Davina, I, I would be saying to people, will you take risks? Because lots of people want to play safe and mm-hmm. I wouldn't do that or I couldn't do that or I wouldn't do that. And uh, there's tremendous satisfaction in taking risks because when they pay off uh, and, and, and by the way, most times they do. And that was my experience anyway. Um, you know, we had, 
we had to occasions like when I, when I was asked first, would, would we do a live uh, midnight, uh, Christmas midnight mass from the women's prison? And uh, most people, oh, gee, live television, they'll all rise, they'll all go crazy, they'll all uh, protest. Um, I said, no, no way, I bet they won't. And they didn't. We mm-hmm. did it on two different occasions. And on both occasions, uh, the, the prisoners were absolutely amazing, even though it was being streamed out live from the prison. So and afterwards, then what do people say? Well, it was fantastic. So you have to take some risks. And, and sometimes you lose and you have to say, take it on the chin. Say, right, that didn't work. But, you know, but I would say to employers, you have to take risks. You have to do new things. Uh, just because something was happening for the last 30 years and worked okay, um, maybe something new will stimulate new interest and give people new energy. And, you know, because change, while we resisted in some ways, change is also exciting. Oh, definitely. And I think you're, you're touching on, again, so many different topics there, you know, that community, the purpose, the meaning, you know, we do, there, there, there's that, the, the term, you know, corporate social responsibility, and some employers will release their employees for the, you know, a number of days a year to engage in the community, to give back. Um, and having um, been part of that myself in, in um, previous employment as well, it is, it's just lifting your head up above the building that you're coming into every day, taking a look outside of the community. And one of the things that when you, when you're speaking about the uh, mass, the midnight mass for the women's prison, it's that sense of pride in uh, developing that pride and uh, of who you are and then having that out in the community as well. Um, and I think that's one thing, you know, that as a society, you know, we've started to kind of pull in a little bit closer, you know, it's more about the individual rather than the community, but we're seeing those cracks appear um you know that model doesn't isn't necessarily the best for us or the way that we're wired to to be as healthy as we can be you know we know it's the strong foundations of community and purpose and meaning which really drive our well-being so it's great hearing that and I think that's a real message to kind of take home to anyone who's listening and you don't need to be in management you you can just have a non-managerial role come up with an idea that you know is going to give some benefit to your immediate team and you know we're looking at what's happening with the pandemic you know a lot of communities well the whole community needs that additional support there might be you know additional things that can be done um and you know once when things are achieved and you know by a large group of people you see how that changes everyone just as you were speaking there about the the drama productions it, you know it's that sense of um uh, the the sum is greater than the parts you know um, all of that 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 comes together Together in that community um, environment. So I, I was going to just come back you to, to the point you were talking about, or we're going to talk about around mistrust and how that plays out in workplaces and, and well-being, subsequent well-being um, when there's a le- when there's a level of mistrust. Are you able to talk a little bit more on your views about that? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, because I became aware of that very quickly as well uh, of the whole thing of of the. the you know, because I believe that, you know, for personal development, uh, there has to be a, a, a significant element of trust because you, you, you must be saying to the person, I believe in you and I trust you to do the best you can and, and, and all that sort of stuff. So prisons uh, then became environments and they are today, uh, they haven't changed. Um, because all the physical stuff isn't there for fun. Like, I mean, if I trust somebody, I hardly put a big wall around them. And hardly lock them in, not lock inside one door, but lock them inside several doors 
and surround the place with, with all sorts of security, search them regularly, um, all, checking them, counting them, all sorts of things that are all insulting to the human being. They're absolutely sure anyone could understand that, that, uh, you know, it, it's totally, you, 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 anything and everything that you're constantly being watched, monitored, not for positive reasons, but for negative reasons. So uh, then to try to balance that off uh, and trying to, to, to help the individual to grow and develop uh, is a very challenging thing, but it's equally in the workplace again, where where there's now I understand that there's a need for overall supervision. Of course, I do. I'm not naive, but there's a number of different ways of doing it, and you don't have you know all the time to be in their face and and to be in obviously quite uh, you know clearly uh, d- demonstrating and demonstrating that you're actually you don't trust the person, and and I believe that in that. So in prison, in special, I suppose one of the, the measurements that I put down as the greatest measurement for a manager now, or, and, and for anyone down along at different levels, and including at home, the real measurement to know if you're operating in an environment of trust, what happens when you're not there? That's mm-hmm. the ultimate test. If you're away for the day off, or if you're out sick, or if you're on holidays, how does your organization operate while you're away? Um, and the real litmus test is if it operates better than when you're there, then you're winning. Now, some managers and some people in authority would take that as an insult. That is the greatest compliment that you can get. You see, if the place operates better when you're away than when you're there, what it means is that your staff are working or, uh, you know, and are more conscientious and determined that they won't let you down. I always remember Ray Keane. And the, the famous uh, 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 soccer player, Manchester United soccer player, Cartman. I always remember him talking about Ferguson, his manager. And he said, you know, when he had, when he had a bad game or a bad first half, when he went into the dressing room, he said, Ferguson, all he had to do was look in his direction. And he knew, I have left you down today. I haven't done my best. And he said, I always went out in the second half to say, well, I'll rectify that. He said he had to say nothing because they, they asked him, what did he say? And he said he said nothing. He just looked. And the look alone was enough for Keane. And, and that's what it's about. It's about that thing of respecting the person and saying, I'm going to do my best for you. Um, and, and that's created by uh, delegation is huge. I, I found that as well. By the way, I inherited it. And the prison service, where there was no delegation. And I can mm-hmm. say that. I'm saying that humbly now because it doesn't matter to me at my age. Uh, but I did inherit an organization or an institution that had no delegation. Everything stayed with the government, even to the, the nitty-gritty of, of authorizing the, the changing of an electric bulb in a cell was signed by the governor. Crazy stuff. Yeah. And people... But what happened was nobody had responsibility. Nobody, they all passed the book up along. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, and so one of the one of the greatest the crucial things in the prison was that every decision that was made that was unpopular was always attributed to the governor. The governor said, it wasn't me as the supervisor or the manager on the floor. No, no, no the governor said it. And that was one of the things that I used to try to get kid off. Say, no, 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 just you're, you're making that decision, not me. And so delegation. And I also found, by the way, that's, that for people, sometimes you had a, men, a, you know, a member of staff and, and he or she wouldn't be really putting the work in and, and people would, you know, you get the, the, the name, you get the name of someone, which you couldn't put him in charge of anything. So she, she'd be useless. 
You know this title that, that people give to people? And, and, and sometimes people are happy with that title. So I have no responsibility now. So I get on fine in my life and I have nothing to do. I found the very opposite. I found that the answer to that was to bring that person in, explain to them what you, and give them specific responsibility and say, now you are responsible for this. And I, I'll, you know, act. and you give them whatever help you, of course you do. You don't set them up to, to set them up to fail. You set them up to succeed, but you say to them, but you are responsible for this. And I found honestly, a revolutionary change in people because they, and, and so, I mean, I, 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 you know, I could tell several stories of amazing tra- changing people, uh, people that were regarded as absolutely wasters uh, on the staff. And when they got response, and the other secret was to give them work that they enjoyed or they were good at. Sometimes people, you know, they're, they're, they're round pegs in square holes and become, but they're very talented in one area, but they're working in a completely opposite area. And, and they have no talent for that and everything is, so, so all these things, delegation, giving people responsibility, and then giving them recognition. Recognition is huge. You know, mm-hmm. when you're out saying and talking to people or when you're going around, and there's nothing better, by the way, for a person's feeling than third party endorsement. It's fantastic. Third party endorsement. That is somebody else saying to you, I heard you were brilliant yesterday. Uh, or I, I heard at the meeting yesterday that you have done fantastic work. Well, that puts people up on a pedestal. Like they're delighted with themselves, and that's what I was saying. That's so. That's the sort of stuff that you're, you're building up and and trying to counteract. So, if you operate even in an environment of mistrust, if you operate on the, with the principle on the principle of of treating people with respect, that certainly reduces the damage of mistrust. Relationships are also huge. If you can develop relationships with people, um, professional relationships, but very very a genuine relationship with the person. That also has a great, uh, you know, so for instance, in education, uh, teachers uh, seconded into the prisons were regarded by the prisoners as not official staff because they came in from outside. Um, They enjoyed a tremendous relationship. Chaplains always in the prison had amazing relationships with the prison, again, because they were associated with the the non-authority, you know, role of the prison. They were able to work in that environment very well because when we when we asked the prisoners in Mount Jai, who do you trust the most? Uh, the chaplains won hands down, uh, and and they, and but they earned that that because they, I suppose the two things that the chaplains put and, and the teachers, but the chaplains in particular, the two things, and this is good for for employers as well and for people uh, in management and and, and and the workplace. The two things that they came out head and shoulders over their head was was non-judgmental. We started at the beginning. So the chaplain wasn't asking the guy, what are you in for? And uh, what crime did you commit? You know, are you a murderer? Oh my God. Mm. They couldn't care less what you were in for. They had no interest what you were in for. They were interested in you as the human being. And that was huge. And the second thing was confidentiality. I know I can talk to the chaplain and it will stay with the chaplain. And they are the two huge uh, things that I would say counteract uh, the environment or the atmosphere of mistrust, confidentiality, and non-judgmental stuff. Mm-hmm. 
two things you know we can definitely take into the workplace wherever we're working you know how are we speaking about others um is there you know a sense of discretion um around you know people who may need to share any kind of problems that are coming up any difficulties that they're having in their role you know but that bit about being human is probably you know gonna be the most important thing especially when we're thinking about what's happening on the kind of global platform um and we're all like we're chatting to each other through a screen right now and you know how do you convey that sense of you know I'm interested in you and what you're saying and bringing that into your work meetings um consistently I think that's probably you know a challenge which we'll all rise to and we'll adapt and many of us have the, the skills there to 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 evolve them for the online working platform and we've had a year of it now so we should we should be getting there but I think you know there are still going to be challenges um, within the workplace, especially fast-paced workplaces where it might become more um, task-focused. The, the interactions may may have a, a slight vulnerability to, to slide into the task-focused conversations. You know, what do I need to get from you? What do you need to get from me? How do we complete this task? Whereas kind of slowing it down and taking that time, you know, the water cooler conversations or, you know, you're walking from one place to another and you're just talking about general things that aren't in relation to anything about work um, and having that contact, that connection with that person on a more deeper personal level is, is going to be the thing which really needs to be um, nurtured um, on this remote working, in this remote working world. I'm, I'm interested to know throughout all your experiences with working with whether it's the prisoners or your own staff or you know anyone you know has there been times when you felt like it's too hard it's that you felt like your faith was waning and because uh, you spoke earlier about the perceptions that other people may have of prisoners and saying well they're not them they're actually part of us you know it's a whole community were there any times when you you kind of felt like you were bringing uh quite a authentic you know this is the way I treat people. This is the way I want others to be treated. This is the way they should be treated. And, you know, did you ever have kind of pushback to say, no, that shouldn't be the way. And how did you manage that? How did you manage your own well-being and your own kind of sentiment in knowing that what you were doing was right for the people versus, versus a different perspective? Yeah, I, I, a huge, I mean, it's a huge complex issue as well. And um, yeah. just before I go, I, I answer that, I just wanted to say, because we talk about confidentiality, I just wanted to say one thing about confidentiality and all that goes with it and showing respect and being non-judgmental. One of the, again, a fundamental uh, philosophy that I had was that I never involved myself in any gossip whatsoever mm -hmm. in the workplace, none. And nobody ever came to my office with gossip for a mm -hmm. very good reason they wouldn't have been entertained. So I didn't mind what was being said at this at the union meeting because naturally uh, the governor being the boss would have been absolutely criticized and happy. I didn't want to know. I said, that's their right, let yeah. them out. Don't, so I'd be saying to people, don't entertain gossip because if you gossip, you shall be gossiped about. And mm -hmm. gossip is so damaging to people's well-being and all that. So that was very important. Mm. Second thing was, I think, it's very important that you believe in your values and your principles and you live by them. You live by them. The truth, honesty, shown respect, um, decency, kindness. Be kind to people no matter what. Uh, even your enemies, in inverted commas, the ones that are difficult, uh, whether they're staff or not. I, I, I did that. 
so when somebody was was in trouble, it didn't matter who they were, you you absolutely treat them the very same as the person you got on very well. So you, in other words, you don't allow any personal sort of relationship things to judge, to decide, and to in, in you know to uh, to in some way influence your decision making. You decide on the basis of the principles that you live by: honesty, truth, integrity, uh, decency, uh, showing respect. And you use those values every time. It doesn't matter whether it's the most popular or unpopular. I, I, I used to say, and I try to practice that, I, not alone as best as I could, 100% if I could, and I was have no favorites. Don't have favorite people, because if you have favorites in, the, in, on your, in your organization, um, you're also going to create a whole lot of, of mistrust and a whole lot of bitterness and jealousy and all that sort of stuff. So there's a, there's a whole lot of, uh, dynamics that are that are important to try. Don't set out to be popular or unpopular, because again, some people do that. Some people, I heard people boasting that the staff hate me. Uh, so how how can you be effective if the staff hate? Or then else, or other people set out to be the most popular person. You, you don't do either. You you set out to do your job, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 that's the other thing about showing respect is. The status that a job of job has does not raise the status of the person. The person is still a basic human being, and he or she should be treated like that. They shouldn't be put up on a pedestal because they're they're the governor or they're the manager or the director. Um, mm-hmm. They're a human being, the same as you and I. What we do is different job. It's the job that's up on the stake, not the human being. And and that's why some people really abuse that because they think because they have a high powered job that they're high powered themselves, but they're not. They're just fundamentally human beings. And if they think like that and operate like that, they're going to connect to people. And, uh, and, and that's very, uh, for me, very, very significant in how you do your job is how you feel. But so for me, I believe in, in the values and the principles that I, I, I live by or that I promote. And on that basis, then that, so I, I must say, gosh, I'm, I can say this, that I, for, for the 42 years that I worked there, I never went in one day disillusioned, or I never went in one day in bad form, or I never went in one day saying, oh, Jesus, uh, you know, I hope I, 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 I hate going here today. And I think that's a part of it. I think if you love what you're doing in that sense and that you, you're, 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 you're engrossed in it, a very important part of being absolutely crucial for me and for, for my philosophy was, but you leave the job in the job when you come out the gate. That is huge. I was going to ask you about this because we've spoken about this before and I love your perspective on this so yeah like work-life balance well you know what is exactly that leave the job whereas I know this is one of your techniques for managing your own Absolutely. well-being yeah I mean I would say of all the things even before you go into what you know work and life balances and they're all very important but psychologically um, I would say, you know, there's two dimensions to it. Leave your family and your private life at home and leave your job in the job. And that's a discipline and it is a discipline and you have to practice it and you have to. And when you start thinking, going home in the car about the job, you say, turn on music. I'm not, go- I'm not going there. And uh, the same at night. I'm, and I can, I, I, I said this before that, you know, my, my family hadn't I knew what I worked. I never discussed work ever mm-hmm. uh, when I came home. And, you know, I was involved in other things, sport and coaching and all. And I found all those things brilliant because they, they completely took you out of that environment. And of course, then in the morning, you went in totally refreshed 
and totally new again. And you hadn't all this stuff in your head, burning away your, your, all your energy, uh, thinking about and planning. Um, and, and people, some people, you know, think that that doesn't, that doesn't uh, mean anything. It means a huge lot because it, it's about enthusiasm. Like you're not just going through the motions every day. You're going because you're, you're alive and you're, and people notice that. So, you know, people notice that. That, that you know you're, you're, this person is alive and this mm-hmm. person is alert and and so example is huge and um, you know, I believe I believe it's a lot bigger and more significant than people think it is because you my you know it's like parents sometimes thinking that their children don't notice they notice everything they mm. notice every single thing so do staff they notice every single thing you do so uh, I, I just maybe shared this with you. I was down after retiring about five or six years ago, down in West of Ireland one night, and I was giving a talk to the community. And uh, the one person in the community at the end asked me, they said, what is your legacy uh, in relation to prisons? And I, and I which, I, which I honestly believe, I, I said, well, I don't think I have a legacy. Um, you know, I did my stuff. Uh, I did what I thought was right. Um, I got 42 years ago at it. Uh, and I, I really, you know, got great satisfaction out of it. Uh, but in terms of a legacy, I said, I doubt if there's any such thing as a legacy. And this guy stood up and he said, well, you don't know me, but I'm working in the prison service for the last number of years. And uh, he said, I'm not working in Mount Joy, but I'm working in Cassie Reed Prison. And he said, I just want to tell you that you have a legacy, actually. And you're still mentioned regularly in relation to the way you, uh, the philosophy you had. So that's so I wasn't aware of that, but he was. And mm-hmm. um, so I'm just saying to, you know, to employers, like, don't underestimate how significant your example is. And mm-hmm. if you do the things that, you know, uh, treat people properly. There's a great chance that all of the other people working with you will treat people pro- properly. Um, so that, that all, all these things. And, and so therefore, it is very important that you mind yourself. This is about well-being. And you see, this is why it is so important. In the old days, we couldn't care less about staff. And I can honestly say that at the beginning, uh, you know, at the very beginning, I didn't realize how significant staff are. But your organization is a whole totally dependent on your staff and how they are. And if they're feeling well, and if they, uh, so that's why, you know, leaving the job behind you, leaving your family at home, sleep, the very basics that everyone talks about, you know, the quality of sleep is so important. Uh, Dice is so important and exercise of all the things I'd be saying to people, you know, that I, I, I do a huge amount of exercise all my life and I'm still doing it. And I found that, you know, come home in the evening and go for a run of seven or eight miles. Amazing. And you come back, have a shower. So you're as fresh as a daisy again. All your day stuff is gone. And um, so th- that is how you mind yourself in some of you leave the job in the job uh, and, and you, you leave home at home when you're at home. And, uh, and then you try to balance things that you have an interest in or that takes you away completely mentally from that environment that, that can be very demanding and very, very uh, stressful if you allow it to be stressful. And I believe that as well, um, because you, I'd be saying to people, look, if a job is causing you that much stress, get out of it. Mm-hmm. In the long term, you're not alone and you're damaging yourself, but you're damaging everybody else as well. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes people are afraid to do that. And I saw that in my old job a lot, where people took on responsibility. They weren't cut out for it. Uh, very good people, but they just weren't cut out for uh, that responsibility. And it wrecked them mentally and physically and emotionally. So, and I'd be saying, if, if it causes that much damage to you, 
don't, don't do it. It's not worth it. Life mm-hmm. is too short and the quality of life is too short. I was just going to say when you were talking about, you know, parents and, you know, in essence, that that full life that you've described that you had outside of work, um, the pandemic has, has, you know, made our worlds a lot smaller. And um, I think it, I think what you're talking about there is also that importance to reorient our perspectives and go, what am I doing at the end of work? Am I shutting my laptop down? Am I going to watch the TV or am I actually moving? Am I still trying to do as best as I can with the, with the things that are available to me? Um, Have you, have you been, have you seen much of, of that as a challenge um, maybe in your own, in your own experiences or, or with, with your own groups, your own um, network in the sense of parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm absolutely convinced that the pandemic has done huge damage and uh, uh, psychologically, mentally uh, and emotionally to human beings. And I, I think we won't be able to measure uh, the damage for quite a number of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not just now. I'd also be saying to people that's, while technology is brilliant and I because I see this stampede for uh, you know working from home and and all this sort of stuff and I'd be you know splashing a red light saying hold on I would steady up now uh, it's not normal to spend 24 7 in a house in a confined area on your own or uh, you know it's not normal and while you know at the moment uh, and part of that can be very effective uh, but it, I'd be I'd be warning against you know, human beings are social beings. They do need social contact. They do need to have some direct uh, contact with other human beings for all sorts of, re- I believe, all sorts of reasons. So, uh, for, you know, the pandemic has forced us to do things. But most things that are done, we, we're also very resilient, a lot more resilient than people think. Um, but, that, but that doesn't mean that we're not being damaged a bit because human beings, look, look at the concentration camps. And, and the way people survived in them and you yeah. say, how could you possibly? Well, that's because of human resilience. Yeah. Uh, it's the same with the pandemic. Just because we can survive it and overcome it and, and, and be able to, doesn't mean that it's good for us. And it's not good, in my view, it is not good for us because of the need for us to have contact with people. Also, psychologically, to be going from one place to another place. Uh, and, and I know, and I take account of travel and traffic and all that, and they are issues and, and they need to be addressed. But... At the same time, and you know, the other side of the kind is, I don't believe it's like prison in a way. Uh, and, and the other part of the pandemic is, the, and people now are beginning to realize it. At the moment here in Ireland, we're getting really impatient about not demanding that the government tell them, well, when are we going to unlock? As if the government knows when we're going to unlock because they don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what you know, going to prison and, and being in prison serving an indefinite sentence is like. You, you, you don't know when you're getting out. And to, to cope with that, all the time, I, you know, is damaging. There's no question in my idea. Of course it's damaging. It creates stress and anxiety. When you have stress and anxiety in your life, you are damaging your physical body and your mental body. Absolutely. So there have been no misunderstanding. And, and lots of people like, you know, you're trying to work, you're doing childcare, you're doing homeschooling, you're doing cleaning, you're doing, you, you, can, you cannot do all those things. We expect people to do it. Some people are doing it. But I'd say most people, that if they're honest, to themselves and honest to others, they're under tremendous pressure to try to do all the things and still be confined because we do need space. We need to get out sometimes. I'm always saying to parents when I'm giving little parenting talks, 
the one thing you must do every single day is get out of that house. No matter what happens, you must get out of that house and go for a walk and preferably with somebody that you're friendly with. That you have a nice little chat where it is very positive and where it's a nice experience. So I'd be saying we need to reflect on the pandemic when it's over, when we have a control risk, pick out the bits that were really, really good, that, that brought about change because it did force us to make lots of changes, which are brilliant. But mm-hmm. also look at the things we are missing and, and, and try to you know, cherry pick the things that are also things that are essential for the human uh, being's welfare. Uh, I'd be very concerned about children uh, because of, of the, the whole breakdown in, 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 in social contact physical contact, all that stuff. I believe all that is huge uh, for children, especially playing sport. Uh, I mean, doing away with sport, in my view, is crazy for children. I still say it's crazy. I'd say a, a pandemic or no pandemic. Uh, what is, you know, the pandemic is one thing, but the life, life, uh, long, you know, the life uh, uh, activities of children and the lifelong uh, damage that can be done to children. I know from people talking, that's too much screens. It is very hard. Double messaging. You talk about the government giving double messages. But look, parents are giving double messages and we're telling our children regularly, get off that screen. That screen is bad for you. And then all of a sudden, they can be on a days or nine hours because only oh, yeah, because you're homeschooling. Mm. So please, wrong. You know, and, and now when it's all over and we're back to normal, it's going to be a massive battle to get children back out playing sport again. And a lot of children have lost interest because that, that's what happens with children. They're not doing it all the time. Then they lose interest. And the damage of that because, again, I come back to my, my absolutely fundamental philosophy for every age group from three or four upwards. I'd say if there's one thing I'd advocate, and that is physical activity for everybody. Physical activity. It doesn't have to be sport, anything. Walking, running, cycling, swimming, anything. If you're playing sport, active sport and physical sport, that's brilliant because you're doing the two things together. But I would say if the one thing we need to keep promoting in Ireland is more and more and more about physical activity. Come home from work, go for a walk, go for a run, do something. Don't Sitting down is definitely the worst thing for our health. We know that now. We need to re- reduce it as much as... And that's all linked to well-being. And if, if you're looking after yourself, you know, physically and mentally, emotionally, and when, you, when you're out of work, the reality is that when you're in work, you're going to be a far more capable, happier, contented uh, uh, you know, resilient person. It's, it's, it, they all, they all link together. Oh, they do. They do. And it's also, you know, what you're speaking about there is bringing the control back, you know, where do you have control to change things? And exactly like you're saying, sitting down, it's a silent killer. Sedentary behavior, we know how detrimental it is to our, our well-being and the health risks associated with it. Um, and yeah, physical movement, you know, whatever it is, get out of the house, do what you can. Um, it doesn't have to be a marathon. Start small. Yeah, and I think that's from, from what we are talking about today, mainly aiming at employers and, and, and the workplace. You know, it's very important that employers uh, see that as part of their responsibility as well. So when a person is working from home all the time, that they're conscious of that, that it's not the same as being in the office. And, uh, you know, you have other people at home, you have children, you have spouses, you have all lot of different people who have equally vested interests. And for, for employers to recognize that and to do something about it, like giving a person a half day off or giving a, a, an extra week's holidays or something, it is very important to indicate that I, as the employer, am aware of this and this is something I'm going to do to try to reduce it or, or at least to give recognition to it. Because people, li- human beings like to be thought about, to be recognized. 
you know, and, and the small things. I always say to people, you know, if you're, you know, in any sort of medium-sized organizations, I'll try to get to know the first names of all your employers. Try to get to know some little things about them that are like, you know, if someone is sick in the family, little things that show that you care because... Mm. That is a great reward. This person isn't a number. This person isn't just... That's why I hate the, the term um, human resource. I hate it, that term. I still I'm with it. you on that, John. Yeah. You know, human resources... I'm not a human resource of anybody. I'm a human being. I, I much prefer the old personnel office to uh, label. Uh, you were dealing with the personnel. But this thing about... I'm not a resource. I'm a human being. And I provide a resource for you in certain ways, but I am not your resource. Um, because I think that's very important that people feel, well, I'm more important than a job. A job is only one tiny part of who you are. And there's a lot of other elements to you and should be. And I wouldn't apologize for that. Uh, my job is, is important, but it's not the be all end all. And there are other parts of me that are equally important. Yep, exactly. And I think one thing that I've seen is, you know, when you start to um, think of people as just pure resources, it depersonalizes that 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 individual that you're working with. And it does focus on the uh, transaction and task focused interactions rather than the, the soft, the conversations that actually mean something and will mean something to that person and to yourself as you get to know them. And because we are human beings, there are going to be times when we're all going to go through periods of stress and overwhelm and having that support around you is going to be one of your um, indicators for, you know, coming out as healthy as you can be. So I think it's um, also recognizing that that relationship goes two ways, you know, like you spoke about earlier, if a manager takes leave from work, the system should operate, you know, without that person there. So it is, it's more than just, you know, um, task completion is coming back to who are we as human beings how do we look after as each other as human beings how do we feed into that society that whether it's the workplace the wider society the community it's really thinking about how all those systems move and work together and feed off each other um definitely so john it's been absolutely amazing having you here today i could spend all day talking to you to be honest um i think we've only just started to skim the surface of all the different areas of philosophy and and well-being and and you know community that we could cover um but it's been it's been great having you here and i hope our listeners will will be able to take some of these tools away with them um i'm sure they will um are there any are there any final words that you want um I guess the only thing we didn't really talk about, and and just to mention it because it's important, I would be saying you know very strongly to people with responsibility and in authority in organisations to develop the skill of listening and hearing, um, from the door person to the cleaner to the you know the tea maker to the chief. It doesn't matter what they are; they're human beings. The van driver. It doesn't matter who they are. Get develop the skill of recognising people. So always recognize the person. If you have their first name, it's brilliant. Uh, and always be appreciative. Always appreciate. So thank you uh, is, is, is powerful. And then listening. Listening to people and hearing what they're saying. It doesn't mean that, you know, your democratization, the, the organization, that's the majority rules. It's not. But you will be enriched if you listen and hear people. Because mm-hmm. some people, maybe way down low down the scale of, of, of job status, could have amazing 
information and major, major observations to give you. And if you were that person who, you know, I'm always reminded of Terry Wogan, uh, you know, the famous, one of our most famous yeah. ever broadcasters. And, you know, in, in, the, in the documentary in England, uh, the BBC did on his life, which was a tribute in itself. He was Irish man from Limerick, but he was recognized as a world-class broadcaster. But I remember one woman talking about him, uh, you know, about him in the studio and how humble he was. And she said, one of the things about Kerry Wogan is he knew every single person from the door in by first name. And he made a point every single day of talking to them about their lives and sitting down with them and, and, and chatting with them and having fun with them. He, she said, from the, from the doorman in, uh, and, and that's, a, that's an indication of class, not status, just class. Great final words. Thank you, John. That's been, Great. as I said, it's been Thanks. absolutely amazing having you here with us today. Thank you so much. And thank you for everyone for listening today. Um, and we look forward to um, hopefully catching up with you again on another occasion. 